Well, uh, um, let me just give a brief explanation as to the why behind for, uh, Philippians chapter 1. As you know, we've finished 1 Corinthians 13, that amazing chapter on love in which Paul talks about the necessity of love, the character of love, and the supremacy of love. Um, but something has been not troubling me, but kind of a burden on my mind, something that's not spoken of in 1 Corinthians 13, but spoken of elsewhere in relation to love. And uh, I shared it with the pastors this last Tuesday morning, just saying, you know, I, I just there's this aspect of, of love that, that Paul doesn't cover in that one chapter. And he wasn't intending to be exhaustive about love in 1 Corinthians 13. But something that I, I've, I know I've needed in my life, and, and I believe um, we need in our church's life, and that is um, wisdom, the necessity of, of wisdom in loving people. And that's something not addressed in 1 Corinthians 13. And, and both of the pastors said, you know what, I think this is probably where we should go. And, and uh, though it's not part of my sermon schedule, uh, we want to be sensitive week by week to say, okay, Spirit of God, where are you going? And if there's a sense of we need to go here, we want to be free to do that. So that's a little bit of the reason why behind chapter 1, verse 9 of Philippians. I know one of the big challenges in my life and continues to be a challenge is not only to love people, but to love people with wisdom. Um, I've known my wife for 20, 21 years, and much of that journey has been learning how to love her um, with discernment. Uh, when we first got married, and probably for the first 10 years, it took me, well, that 10 years, because I'm, I'm that dense, to realize that when she would bring a problem to me that she was having with somebody or a frustration, that she wasn't looking for me to fix it. But that, amen, but that is, that is... Almost um, a typical male thing. Pop open the hood and let's see what the problem is, uh, metaphorically speaking. And so I would um, invariably, I would go into fix-it mode. And then she would respond in a way that I didn't expect, namely that she got upset with me. And I couldn't understand it. From my angle, it seems like it's the loving thing to do to help. But what she heard was, listen, you idiot, if you had any brain matter whatsoever, you could figure out the solution. And I have it. What she was hearing and what I was saying were two very, very different things. And so, as I said, it took quite a while to learn that, you know what? The loving thing in those particular moments is not to fix it, but listen. That wisdom would teach us that there are, a time, there are times to do some things and times to do other things. And it takes a while to learn, hey, I'm just supposed to be quiet right here and shut my yammering skull cave and love my wife by simply listening. Now, at other times, she does want me to help. And she has had to learn the wisdom of being direct in her speech. Like, tell me, I need help. And don't just drop hints. So we're trying, in this thing called marriage, to learn to love one another wisely. Now, I wish that I could sometimes hear the thoughts of my wife and get into her mind. You know, like Mel Gibson in What Women Want. And be able to know the female mind. But not only is that impossible, but it's marginally dangerous to enter anybody's mind. Um, that this side of heaven, uh, those of us who are from Mars, uh, need to do our best to learn how to love those from Venus. And vice versa. And that, of course, is just to enter us into the whole subject of the need for a wisdom in the application of love, in marriage, in family, in the church, in almost any relationship, is the necessity of wisdom, because we're all so different. Not only are those generational, uh, generational differences, but also those gender differences. And then we come from so many different backgrounds. There are those who come from family dynamics where you converse by shouting at each other. 
And nobody's upset. Nobody's mad. Nobody's hurt. But somebody who comes from a family dynamic where everybody's passionate and loud all the time, coming into a quiet and subdued family, it can oftentimes feel overbearing, brash, and, and rude. That is, there are differences. And, and part of love is learning how to, how to discern how to love a particular person. And that is the topic with which um, Paul speaks of, or the, 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 the topic he speaks to here in Philippians 1, verse 9, um, is this aspect of, of loving people with wisdom. It's a prayer of his, and it, um, it gives us an insight into his heart and his mind, the way he thinks, but also into in, uh, through him, the mind and the heart of God. This is what he prays for this ancient church. He says this, he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now that's really the only verse I want to look at. This is my prayer, that your love may abound, the same love characterized in 1 Corinthians 13, described, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Those last two, knowledge and depth of insight, are just the two components of biblical wisdom. Um, so there's basically two things that he prays here, and this is kind of the two directions I want to move, and they're related to each other. The first is the part of his prayer where he prays that love grows, that it would abound, and the second having to do with growing in a particular direction, namely in wisdom, which is what the word knowledge and depth of insight mean. As I said, this kind of gives you an insight into the mind and the heart of Paul, and through him, the mind and heart of God as to what's important. In the first part of the prayer, he prays, and you can almost memorize this, it's pretty quick, that your love may abound more and more. It's interesting that Paul would have made his... Um, uh, statement adequately had he just said, listen, I want your love to abound. I pray that your love would abound. I mean, the word abound means to grow. But he goes over the top in kind of an emphatic redundancy, and he adds the words more and more, as if it's really important to him. I mean, this is the first thing that he says he prays for for this congregation, is that their love would abound, it would grow. And not just grow, but more and more and more. You get the sense that love is really important to him, which is why it dominates his prayer life. Now, as a bit of an aside, you come to know a lot about what's important to people by what they pray, pray the most for. So if you're praying constantly for your dog's hip dysplasia, uh, you know that the dog is pretty important to you. If you're praying that your stock in Mountain Boy will go up, you know that your stocks are pretty important. Well, here, what dominates the heart and the thoughts of Paul for the church and for the people of God is that they love each other. And not just love each other, but that that love would grow more and more and more. And it's one of the marks, I think, of Christian maturity to begin to pray God's passion. That um, the reason Paul prays for love is because it dominates the heart of God. Um, that's true in the Old Testament, true in the prophets, true in the teachings of Jesus, where he taught us to, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as himself. And, of course, we learned from Paul um, in the last, I don't know, half, four, five, six, seven, eight weeks about how important love is, that it is supreme. So it, does, it makes sense that it would, it would take one of the first places in his prayer life. 
A good reminder to let God's priorities and God's passions dominate our prayer life. It reflects that our heart is connected to him and we're passionate about what he's passionate about. And in this case, he's praying that God's people, and God's people are made up of individuals, so this has to apply down to the individual level. That God's people, you, that your love would be expansive, ever advancing, ever overflowing. In other words, love amongst God's people is never to content itself by remaining safe, but allow itself to risk, to seek out new territories and new lands with which to, to, to love people. That's his prayer. The love would never stop. It would continue to, to take over. It's supposed to be an aggressive, almost offensive kind of thing. Not offensive in the bad sense, but a military offensive. Take new ground. Take new territory. Never stop. Never grow comfortable and never allow it to remain safely behind the walls of, of, uh, of fear or comfort. That whole idea of that your love may abound more and more um, brings to my mind an image of a plant that my neighbor planted right next to my fence, um, a vine by the name of kudzu. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. Um, well, actually, it was his ex-girlfriend that planted the vine next to my fence. But I did a little research because the thing started to take over, not just my yard, but my neighbor behind me's yard and the neighbor next to him. I mean, it's like cancer. And I looked it up online, and, and it, it is one of those vines that grows at an absolutely alarming, amazing rate. It is one of the four fastest-growing vines in the world, ranks up there with bamboo and kelp. And, uh, and so here it is growing into my yard, and I quite literally have to beat it back with blood, sweat, and tears um, every spring, summer, and fall, because it keeps growing. A foot a day it grows. That's the kind of plant you can actually kind of watch grow. That's how fast it goes. And my neighbor, his ex-girlfriend, planted it right next to my fence. It's no wonder she's his ex-girlfriend, because I have watched my neighbor go out there because he hates the plant too, and he's the one who allowed her to plant it. So he's gone out there, he's kicked, on, kicked it, spit on it, he's covered it, drowned it in Roundup, but it still comes back over and over and over again. The only thing we haven't tried is napalm. But it keeps, keeps growing. It keeps growing. That's the kudzu vine. And it's right next to my house. And I was looking at this passage and I thought, man, that's exactly what Paul's praying for the Christian people. Only not in the offensive uh, way or the kind of botanical distaste. But the idea that Christian love is to constantly grow. You know, that vine, every time it finds a crack or a crevice, it grows through the cracks of the fence, grows over the fence, grows around my little camellias. It just grows everywhere. And that's kind of the sense as Paul's praying, listen, the church, people, God's people, you, you know, your love is to be that kind of expansive, ever advancing thing. It's to be this kind of malignant thing that goes into the cracks of relationships and, and it's supposed to overcome the walls and to, to weave its way into the fabric of relationships and not be content with where you're at, but to continue to expand it, never to be content. That's the image that came to my mind with, with this, that God, Paul prays, and we should be praying, and we should seek out, that our love would abound more and more and more, and never allow it to stop, but always and continually to grow. I mean, is that, is that how it is in, in your life? Uh, or, or, or are you, as many are, content to stay comfortable, never risk anything, Never risk going over to a neighbor's house and saying, hey, you want to come over for an open house? 
or saying, hey, we're going to have a Bible study in my house. Do you want to come? Or even just shaking hands and asking, hey, what's your name at a, at a grocery store? I mean, little things like that. Many of us are so confined by our own sense of comfort and safety, they're never willing to risk. But if there's no willingness to risk, then, then love is never going to abound more and more. It's, it's like the sense that love looks for those cracks and those opportunities and says, I'm going to go there. And when there's not a crack, there's an attempt to make a crack, you know, to take it on the offensive and say, listen, I'm going to make an opportunity and, and do something so that love can abound. That's Christian love. That's the kudzu plant. And I, I'm always encouraged, and not only encouraged, but inspired when I hear stories of, of, of some of you who, who do this. And there are people in our congregation who look for those cracks and those opportunities, and they take them courageously. And it's an example to me and an inspiration to me and should be to many of us of, of this kind of aggressive kind of growing love. I know that I have heard stories of some of you who have stood in court with others in this congregation, sometimes for a son or a daughter, or sometimes you're the one being sued, and, uh, and people have taken time off work and, and decided, hey, I'm going to stand by you. That's, that's the kind of uh, expansive love abounding more and more that, that I think should inspire all of us. Uh, I spoke to a lady this last week who can't get out of her bed, and she talked about some ladies and some families who kept bringing warm meals over to her, and she's just totally blown away. Well, that's, that's, that's this kind of aggressive love, not just in big things but in small things, going into the home of a person you don't know very well and say, hey, I brought you some, some enchiladas. Um, that's expansive love. Two days ago, I was sitting at lunch with Mark Lillis, and he was telling me about this last Christmas that one of the families of our church called him and said, hey, listen, we'd like to give presents to a, to a family um, in the Levin ministry that don't have money this Christmas. So they were making an opportunity. And so Mark started to think and pray, and he, he found just the right home across town, a grandmother who's taking care of her grandson and a cousin. Don't have money to buy presents. This family took it upon themselves to buy a whole couch full of presents to bring them over to this grandmother, her grandson, and that little grandson's cousin. And not only did they give presents to people they didn't know, but stopped and prayed for that family. Now that is making your way into the cracks and over the walls. And not just content to stay behind the redwood fence of your neighborhood, but to say, I'm, I'm going to do this by the Spirit of God. I am going to see his love abound in my life. And that is, that is a sign that the Spirit is alive in your life where the Spirit fills you, that love will abound. You will be compelled, as Paul says, compelled by the love of God to do things for people that you wouldn't ordinarily do in your own strength. That's what he prays for, that love would abound more and more and more. If, if, if every individual who calls himself by the name of Jesus in this congregation was to resolve by the grace of God that I'm going to learn how to love that way, with an abounding love, never stop or allow my fear of embarrassment, my fear of rejection to keep me from loving people. And that's Christian love. It breaks through walls. It's willing to suffer. It's willing to be persecuted. Indeed, it's willing to give its life for the sake of loving others. That's what Jesus did, gave his life. That's how radical his love was for us. And then he calls us to love this way. So that's Paul's first part in this prayer. Does your love abound more and more? Is that a heartbeat prayer of yours? I wonder if there's some of us who don't even know our neighbors' names. And I, I just think the Lord would say, you know what? 
not only repent, but look to me, and I will provide opportunities for you, and then you'll see my glory. Watch me work. Well, that's the first part, is that Paul prays as we should pray, as we should long, as we should desire to see in each of our lives love abound more and more. It's supposed to be expansive, aggressive, and advancing. But in a particular direction, and that brings us to the second part, with wisdom. That is, he's not praying for an abounding love that's indiscriminate, that mows people over. But in particular, verse 9, again, that love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And that is, uh, there's, those things are tied together conceptually. Those are the two parts of, of wisdom. Knowledge, that is what you know. The information, the truth, that I know these things, that's knowledge. But it must be coupled, if it is to be wise, with discernment, which focuses on how to apply what you know. Both components necessary for biblical wisdom. You must know truth, but not just know it, you must have the discernment to know how to apply it in specific circumstances. And that what may work for one person doesn't work for another person, a different person. So that sometimes wisdom would love a child by giving a gift, a material gift. At other times, wisdom will love a child by withholding a gift. Sometimes when we spoil our children, it's not loving, at least not loving with wisdom. And other times, failure to give anything to a child is also a failure to love. Wisdom is able to discern when to give and when to withhold. That the wisdom of love knows when love should speak and when love should be silent. Wise love knows when to act and when to wait and be patient. That wise love knows when to confront and rebuke and correct or when to encourage and when to praise. And the different circumstances, different contexts, and different peoples and different personalities call for different types of love. That requires wisdom. Not only a knowledge, but a discernment as to how best to use that knowledge in this particular case. That's the idea of of wisdom. Um, Wisdom is able to flex, or to use Marine Corps terminology, it's able to improvise, overcome, and adapt. Uh, It's it's, um, the ability to, in your love, change strategies mid-course and say, this doesn't work, so I'm going to do something different. It's the recognition that sometimes in dealing with a belligerent son or a rebellious, deceitful daughter, that you don't just ride him over and over again, especially if it's not doing you any good. But wisdom is able to say, how best can I deal with this particular situation? That's what Paul's praying for, that our love would abound more and more, but in a particular way, namely, with wisdom, with what we know, and the discernment. How best can I reach this particular person? It's able to flex. That is a a little bit different than many of us when we approach um, loving people. We have a bit more of a Betty Crocker style. You know, he's like, I want to learn how to love my husband. So you open to the recipe section on on loving your husband, and there you read, feed him meat and potatoes, give him the remote, and never, under any circumstances, direct him when he's driving. 
Now, as much wisdom as there may be in beef potatoes and in not giving direction when a man is driving, that kind of cutter approach to love doesn't work. And many of us are trained or think that way. Is, is okay, what does it call for in this moment, given this particular situation? Because sometimes men need to be told where to go. Not very, not very often, mind you. <laughs> Driving. <laughs> oh, you're distracting me. I know that that's the tendency and the pressure, or should I say the temptation for pastors. You know, someone comes in for counseling. Listen, I can't get along with my son. Oh, let me check my filing cabinet. Boom, 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 boom. K or C. Can't get along with my son. Look, here it is. Here's the answer right there. Well, you're a different kind of father with a different kind of son. You know, have a different background. You have a relationship that has a very nuanced shape to it, which means it's going to require a specific shaped wisdom for you to get along with your son. So I'm just here to help you explore different angles to this. Um, But I can't pull out a recipe and say, here you go. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is able to flex. It's able to strategize and reposition if need be and recognize that there's multi-dimensions to any given problem or relationship. That's, that's so important. Wisdom. Uh, I, I remember a conversation I had with one of my pastoral mentors, um, a man who's influenced my life. And, uh, and uh, I, I actually went to college and went to, went, when I was in college, I went to his church. And I saw him years later, and I asked him, I said, say, how are your kids doing? Because I remember he had three kids, and they were all little when I knew him. And now they're all getting grown up. And he said, you know, they're doing okay now, but we had a, had a difficult go of it there in terms of their education. And I'll never forget the conversation because it just taught me the flexibility of wisdom in applying love. Because originally they homeschooled all three of their children. But what worked for one wasn't working for two and three. And so to make a long story short, he said, well, we have one child in public school, one child in private school, and another child in homeschool. And I told him, I said, wow, you don't read that in a parenting book very often or something like that. I mean, it's not typically standard. Usually we have a one-dimensional approach, one size fits all. And if you have a preference for one particular style of education, my point is not to hammer home any particular kind. But what it showed me is he recognizes, recognized, forgive me for this Idiom, you cat lovers. But he recognized that there's different ways to skin a cat. (laughs) That public school, one of his children thrived in that environment. And a second one thrived in a private school environment, but didn't in a public. And then he had a third one in homeschool. He recognized in each child a very different personality. And was able to flex. Now that to me was a sign of wisdom. And something that all of us need in our marriages is the willingness to say, hey, this isn't working with my wife. So there's different ways to skin a cat, different ways to love. I'll stop using that, by the way. (laughs) In our families, in our relationships, is the need for this thing we call wisdom. The ability to adapt. And I'll tell you, I'll just be perfectly honest with you. I have hurt people not because I didn't love them, but because I didn't love them wisely. So I have intended to do some things that were loving in what I've said, only to find out later that it hurt and caused pain. And that is a sign that I needed to learn and still need to learn wisdom with my wife, with my, my children. 
just this last December, my, my daughter came up to me, you know, in the kitchen, and she looked at me and gave me a big hug, and I, I don't know. My daughter asked for a Ferrari when she's in high school. If I had the money, I'd probably give it to her because my heart is so connected to her. But I looked down at her and I said, sweetheart, you are so beautiful. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But you have to be very careful because I was commenting on her physical beauty. Meanwhile, the mother-in-law, who's sitting there while I'm saying that, wiser than I am, she pipes up and she says, but Allie, the real beauty is seeing what God's doing in your heart. And I just realized at that moment when I'm praising the outer beauty of my daughter that I can unintentionally, if I'm not careful, form in her an obsession with how she looks, not who she is, which is what God cares about. So there in that little moment, I'm, I'm learning, and that's, wisdom requires learning. So it's a process that takes time. It doesn't happen in a moment. But recognizing, well, I need to be more careful and selective with my words, with my daughter. As love needs wisdom. It needs knowledge, and it needs discernment. And I'll tell you, a lot of the relationships around here would do a lot better, and marriages would thrive more, and so would the church if we were able to flex and seek wisdom in the application of love whatever that looks like, and not just take a cookie-cutter approach, because not everybody's a square, not everybody's round. Some of us are rounder than others. But, um, but recognize love does different things. That's wisdom. It's a sermon, and it's what Paul prays for right here, is that the church, God's people, would abound, that love would flourish in advance, but that it would learn to love wisely with knowledge, and the discernment as to how best to express that love. Now, the logical question that I would ask if I were you and that I ask myself is, okay, he prays for abounding love with wisdom. How is it that we gain wisdom with love? And here, I can't speak to your specific situation because they're all different. Um, Relationships are different. Backgrounds are different. They're all specific So let me give you a couple tools, biblical tools for gaining wisdom. And they're obvious. You don't have to have a degree to understand this. Is that if you want to love people with wisdom, you want to learn it, and it is a process, then you must pray for it. And that's that's the exhortation of James chapter 1. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. Because the origin of true wisdom is from above. It's not found in books of philosophy, but it's found in the heart of God himself. So we pray for it. I mean, that's, that's what we call this thing we do. It's faith. Christianity is a faith. We believe and trust that God has wisdom. And so we ask him, trusting that he'll supply it. And not just pray for it once, but the way Paul models it here, because that's what he's praying for. I mean, he's an example of James 1. He's praying that their love would abound, but in wisdom. So he's praying James 1 for us. Asking God that he would supply the wisdom. And the way in which the verb here um, is stated, it's a continual thing. We continue to pray for wisdom. Continue to give me wisdom in my marriage. Continue to give me wisdom with my spouse or my wife or my husband, my kid, my daughter, my mother-in-law, or the guy at work. Give me wisdom so that I can love that person with knowledge and discernment. So we, we pray for it. 
How often do we have problems with somebody in our life? And the last thing we do is really pray and say, Lord, I need wisdom because I want to love this person um, in a way that they get, in a way that helps, in a way that's effective. And we pray for it. Second thing, also biblical, is, is inform and uh, fill your mind with the counsel of God's word. That, that sounds probably a bit cliché. I'm not talking about just reading your chapter a day. I'm talking about deeply meditating upon Scripture so it becomes a part of you. So that God's thoughts become your thoughts. Um, even, even the word he uses here, knowledge, knowledge and depth of insight, that word knowledge, at least in terms of Paul's vocabulary, almost always has to do with the knowledge of God, knowledge of the Son, or the knowledge of his will. That is, it's not talking about just the knowledge of circumstances. It's talking about divine knowledge, knowing him, knowing his Son, and knowing his will which is preserved for us in Holy Scripture. Now, the Scripture doesn't provide, always, explicit answers to your questions. But I believe if one constantly soaks in the Scripture, it puts you in a position of wisdom to think wisely. Your heart is tied to God's heart. Your thoughts are tied to God's thoughts. So you are in a position to think wisely when there is a constant intake of Scripture in your life and in your heart. That it, in the words of Scripture, it makes wise the simple, Psalm 19. No matter how old you are, the best wisdom comes from the truth. So you pray for it and continue to... I don't even know how to... Study is over-intellectualizing, to use that word. To eat, to drink the Scripture, so that it becomes a part of your way of thinking, so you start to think like it thinks. You want to become wise? Completely immerse yourself in this book constantly. You pray for it. You allow the Scripture to wash into your heart and mind. Then you will be in a position of wisdom. And then third, and this is going to kind of come across funny, but it also is biblical. Get to know an old person. And that's biblical, the older teaching the younger. Some of you are raising an eyebrow. Did he just call me old? Old? Like we don't, we don't call people old. We have to call them older. Seasoned. Which is an interesting commentary on the fact that our culture disregards age and length of life as a treasure. In other cultures around the world, To be called old isn't an insult. It's a badge of honor and respect. But in a culture that disregards age and worships smooth skin, we don't like to be called old. And so there is an orientation to youth. Even watching some of the programming that I watch and some of my kids watch, like iCarly, I watch... I've only seen a couple episodes, and it's interesting how in that, and I've seen other sitcoms, where the smart ones in that particular show or episode are the young ones, and the ignorant ones are the old ones. Really? Is that the way it works? I mean, 70, 80, 90 years of lessons forged in life, adversity, aren't important? It sure seems to me that 
if a generation dies having all of those lessons forged in life without transmitting it to the next generation, then the next generation, my generation, we have to reboot. We have to start from scratch. We have to reinvent the wheel. And that's precisely what's happening, is that there is such a generational breach because there is an overemphasis on smooth skin. I mean, it just goes to show the value. We spend far more money in, in uh, keeping our bodies looking young and great than we do on wisdom. We don't spend as much time either. Ancient cultures valued wisdom over smooth skin. And as a result, they cherished the aged. And, uh, and I believe that we should as, as well. And to learn from them. Um, to learn from those of you who have actually made it through 20, 30, 40, 50 years of, of marriage and still are going. I mean, that's, there's wisdom in there that needs to be mined out. And that's biblical. It's biblical. So let me, on that note, just make two pleas right here at two opposite ends of the generational spectrum. One is to those who are younger. And let's say younger, and this is all relative, but under the age of 50. Is to seek out and have the courage and have the humility to pray for and seek out a mentor in your life who's older than you. We oftentimes think of that as optional, but... We ought to think of it as a mandate, that I desperately need it. And that's one of the things God has supplied for our body. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, that Dan Overby does his best to create small groups that are generationally diverse. Because the generational homogeneity, where you separate all the ages, well, it, it, it kind of short circuits the transmission of wisdom. Which is why there's an emphasis on diversity, because we want those connections to be made. So if you're a young person, and my generation is notoriously arrogant and thinks we can work out all the problems on our own, but that's stupid, is to look for, pray for, and when someone, God brings someone to mind, just go up and say, hey, would you mind taking me under your wing? Maybe just 10 minutes after a small group that I can just ask you about this particular issue in my life. We do much better by soaking in that wisdom of the generations, recognizing, of course, simply be, being old does not make one of highs. I've met a lot of foolish old people. But there are older people who have spent a lifetime, and they should be from the younger generation. Um, they should be um, taken advantage of in a good sense. So I just I want to encourage each of us. I have mentors in my life that I have submitted my life to. Some are in this congregation, some are outside this congregation, and I need them in my life. I've come to recognize I cannot fix all my problems on my own. But then I also want to make a plea to those of you who are retired. And, and I, I hope I make this respectfully, but I want to make it in a straightforward manner as I can. Because I don't just speak from the vantage point of a 42-year-old pastor. The Lord asked me to speak for him. So I want it to come from him. You who are retired have more time than probably anybody else. Your kids are gone. You don't have to check in at work any longer from 8 to 5. Um, and to add to that, you have a lifetime of lessons, failures and successes built into your life, giving you a tremendous amount of wisdom, which I think all of that converges to say the people um, who are perhaps the best equipped ministers of any given congregation, including this one, are those who are retired. So I, I believe the Lord would say to you, and it's, it's, you have to answer to him, not to me. So if you don't want to take this, that's fine. 
But I think he would say to you, don't waste the best years of your life. The best years are right now if you're retired. You have the most to give. And the younger generation, their relationships are disintegrating at an alarming rate. They need you. In the words of John Barry, they're falling apart like wet tacos. We need it transmitted. Don't waste it. Don't give in to the cultural lie and the voice of Satan that says, you know what, these are your golden years coast. Go ahead, let off the gas. Spend your hours frittering away the final days of life, playing bingo, and doing water aerobics from 10 to 12. Nothing wrong with those things. Understand me. If you play bingo, that's fine. You could do water aerobics, keep yourself healthy, that's great. But don't coast to a stop and waste the best years. Run all the way. Run the race all the way until your last breath. And that way you know when you cross that line, the Lord is going to say, you ran the whole way. You didn't coast to a stop. Well done. Good and faithful servant. So it's a plea from the Lord. I mean, younger generation has to humble themselves and cry out for help. And I just hope and pray that the love of the older generation would abound more and more in wisdom and discernment to know that there is a desperate need in our day to reconnect the generations and transmit that wisdom. We have to pray for it. We have to fill our minds with the Scripture. And I hope we have the humility and also the responsibility to connect and transfer wisdom from one generation to another, something that's being breached and has been breached in the church. But here you have, brothers and sisters, the kind of the final the final message on love, the need for wisdom. I pray and hope that this particular prayer, at least the idea of it and the concept of it, would help to form in us a sense that we need to abound more and more in love as individuals and as a church, not to be content with just the leaven or even just reaching out to one neighbor, but continuing, but to do so with tremendous wisdom and discernment gained from prayer, the scripture, and the input of those who are older in our lives. It seemed to us fitting end to this particular message to just pray that prayer. And so what I'd like to ask you to do, if you're here with somebody you know, spouse, child, friend, if you would just turn to them and if you would pray for them. I want you to just simply pray this prayer for them. Just say, Lord, will you pray, will you, in Bill's life or in Dan's life, will you allow love to abound more and more in his life at work and at church and, and in his neighborhood and do so with wisdom um, pray for each other. And if you're here alone, you're here as a visitor, then you don't need to turn and pray with anybody. But I just encourage you, it's something about being prayed for in that, that regard that is, that is very helpful. So will you just pray for each other and then pray for this church that God's love would abound more and more in and through us in wisdom and discernment. And then we'll sing some closing songs.